this is the OBG Project Core Exchange, our podcast dedicated to all things research in obstetrics and gynecology, bringing you current articles featuring topics in both OB and GYN to discuss research findings and also the researchers' experiences. Learning and teaching in medicine still operates largely on an apprenticeship model where we learn from what we've seen. And our goal is to bring in guest researchers highlighting their experiences, both from the medical student and resident perspective, as well as the chief investigators to learn what has worked best. In order to help us facilitate this big weighty discussion, we have Dr. Nancy Cheshire, who will be joining us throughout the series. And to kick off our first episode titled Big Ideas, we have Dr. Katherine Hartman, who has done a lot of things over the course of her career, but we're going to be focusing on Edge for Scholars. Let us begin. Of Dr. Katherine Hartman. She's a rare gem, both an OBGYN and a PhD epidemiologist, um, well known for many things, including a research program right from the start, which looked at early pregnancy and preconception from multi-ethnic pregnancy cohort from seven metropolitan areas, um, and has looked at substantial novel findings about early pregnancy health, causes of miscarriage, risk factors for adverse pregnancy outcomes, as well as being one of the first to really document the prevalence of uterine fibroids in pregnancy and racial disparities in adverse pregnancy outcomes. What we're most interested in talking about today is talking about edgeforscholars.org, where you can hear, as they describe it, candid commentary, gritty truths, and sharpen your academic edge for all things research. Welcome, um, Dr. Hartman. Uh, it is uh, great to have you join us on this inaugural uh, podcast. Um, we're very excited to be doing this. Uh, Dr. Comfort has done a great job of teeing up why we're doing this and what the goal is. Um, uh, just by way of background, I've known uh, you, Catherine, um, for many years uh, in uh, two institutions, and um, it was uh, a no-brainer to me to invite you to kick this off because I know you'll uh, be encouraging, honest, frank, thought-provoking, uh, and humorous all at the same time. Um, and um, I just am um, looking forward to our, our conversation. Yeah, not at all. You'll do fine. <laughs> I love um, helping people navigate academic life more than just about anything. It's really um, selfishness-driven mentorship that brings me to things like Edge for Scholars and having trainees and scholars because it lets you think a lot of new thoughts with a lot of new people constantly and lets you think about what's the best way to get answers. And more importantly, what's the best and most practical way for people to solidify their careers so that they can get answers to questions that matter to them. Because often, um, as Ashley mentioned, the sort of mentorship culture is um, a very apprenticed approach to you do more of what I do. And I think the most joy in mentorship for me is how can I take something that I know how to do and help you do what you do 
well enough that it will be recognized to become an independent area of research or independent scholarly project that contributes to education, clinical care, or discoveries that change people's health. So it is really, really focused on the things that excite me, the fact that I do this work. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about medical education um, is helping people satisfy their curiosity. Um, and whether that's, as you've just described it, um, the uh, in the research realm, and that's what we're all about with this podcast, but also in the clinical realm. You know, what can I do differently to help this patient sitting in front of me? Um, and what resources are available to help me do that? And that insatiable curiosity that Curious George uh, was all about is, uh, I think, just a, a real key to these conversations that we hope to be to be having, and certainly with this one. Absolutely, and I have to say the best questions I've ever asked came out of clinical head scratching. I grew up in a family, you all asked me to say a little bit about my background. I'm not going to give you academic credentials. I'm going to tell you how my family taught me to taught me to think. Um, I grew up in a family that had small businesses, farms, and restaurants, hard work, and a lot of attention to how you serve your industry, your customers, your clients. What is satisfaction? How do you deliver exactly what people need when they need it? How do you innovate? How do you innovate quickly? What processes have to work well for groups of people to work well together? And all of that sounds a little crazy, but it translates directly you know, running a linen service that supplies tablecloths because your restaurant wasn't able to get good tablecloth service from another linen service is a problem-solving activity. And, and businesses are so much more creative, flexible, and fast. They're agile. And so I got to grow up in a home where around the dinner table, we were always talking about, well, why is that? And, and in school, I was that kid. You know, I was the kid in the class going, but what makes us think that? Why is that? How does that work? I, I probably tortured more teachers than I'm aware <laughs> of. Um, so, and, I, and I know I was still torturing people in residency and to a degree today, but I'm a little more quiet about my, um, hmm, hmm, is that really, do we really think it works that way? Or have we just lapsed into a comfort level with that's the way it is, so we have to leave it like that? And um, so across clinical questions ranging from, episiotomy to do we need to treat that fibroid to do we really get any benefit out of screening older women for clinical hypothyroid disease. They've almost always come out of clinical care encounters or working with clinicians who have a degree of skepticism about whether or not the level of evidence is sufficient for um, making good choices or providing good information, more importantly, to our patients so they can make good choices. So absolutely. I don't think this comes up a lot because Edge for Scholars serves all kinds of researchers. I don't think that clinician investigators um, necessarily have a leg up. Um, we, we actually face some challenges related to our clinical time and related to the difficulty of seeing what things we may believe without just cause, <laughs> but we also serve PhD scientists and science 
now is is teams. There, there's no small science. All science that's going on at scale that lets you sustain your research enterprise is going to be interdisciplinary and teams. And clinical folks, when they lead those teams and when they're part of those teams, bring unique knowledge bases they can help shape the key elements of questions in ways that it's often difficult for PhDs to do. In fact, we have a track here at Vanderbilt that's called um, Clinical Context. I met a, and, and this is sort of the family industry thing, right? I met an investigator who's a PhD scientist who was joining faculty who's been doing fabulous pancreatic cancer research forever, who'd never been to a tumor board conference about a pancreatic cancer patient, who'd never been to see anybody get radiation treatment. They'd never been, so they, they're uh, isolated in this information box that's purely mechanistic biological, um, where the closest they get to the clinical care is going to the pathology lab to pick up a specimen. And so it moves in both directions. How do we, how do we help our teams work by generating that translational language so we understand each other and we can do really multidisciplinary work? Um, and, and how do we um, as, as clinical folks not run over the PhD and other investigator input as, as well as people who are educator track, who are doing fabulous research and, and need partners on these other trainings. So that's probably too long an answer, but, but I think that clinician researchers serve a unique role, um, but we have to be careful to not to always want to be the boss and to make sure we can listen to best practices and methods and research strategies and learn from the people who don't have a clinical aspect to their care because they are really doing the hardest work, which is doing science full-time for a living. <laughs> and a lot of us in OBGYN will get there. It used to be a myth that there weren't research-dominant OBGYNs, and if there were, there were only MFMs or oncologists. And we're finally getting to the point where the sophistication of our research is catching up with the demands for sophistication that it takes to be funded in order to sustain a research career. Can you talk a little bit about people who may be very interested in research but don't necessarily have a strong background in it, as well as what really motivated you to even start something like Edge for Scholars? I'm in a generation that saw a different type of diversity emphasis. It was getting women into science and women into faculty and women's career development was sort of in its heyday as I was entering science. Um, and there were clearly um, things across disciplines and across mentors that were held close, that weren't shared. And that struck me in all ways as wrong. <laughs> that um, if it only flows from mentor to mentee or from research dominant departments, let's say a division of clinical pharmacology to other people in that division, key tips for success. And I live in a really practical world because of that sort of business background. I, I know for a fact, I read the Harvard Business Review before any scientific drama. So, so I live in this book where if you can think of the process for what you're trying to do and you can get information from people about how it gets done in the best places, then you too can do it. But if there, if there is, and there still is, disappointingly, an academic elite that likes to hold these things close because they think it increases their advantage, 
then that's fundamentally flawed. So Edge for Scholars grew out of that. We have a fair amount of success with our career development at Vanderbilt, both with pre-doc, post-doc, and then early career faculty transitions from career development awards into fully funded research portfolios, probably three times the national average. But that's not for us to hold on to. I could do that in service of making our grants look that much better than anybody else's grant, but that's not helping a person at the smaller university who isn't going to hear about the change in the biosketch or who isn't going to get coached about how to look at NIH reporter about what is getting funded right now in order to adjust how you present your research and which methods you're using and make sure you're at the leading edge so you're competitive. So to my mind, anybody with a great idea deserves to be to compete that idea. But it's not natural, which sometimes we believe as clinicians, because we've never fallen down by the time we go to a good medical school, we go to a good residency, we go to, we think, because we have to think that I can go into the OR and do that surgery, that I can read a lot of articles. And even if I don't have great colleagues lined up next, I can think of brilliant research thought and design a protocol. That's just a small piece of getting science done. There's all kinds of practical knowledge about double data entry. You probably haven't heard of it as a clinician. <laughs> There's all kinds of strategies for how you train people on your research teams to provide you the highest quality data and to give them the most satisfaction with advancing their skills. So all of that deserves to be shared. And frankly, most of us are funded on federal dollars or foundation dollars. And there's a stewardship question here. If you're, and I'm not aiming at CTSAs, but they just are a sort of monolithic research presence, right? If your CTSA doesn't want to share anything about how you help your career development awardee trainees succeed, then there's something fundamentally wrong because those weren't your resources to begin with. That's your tax dollars, my tax dollars, all our tax dollars. And if we're learning things about what supports effective careers, then it deserves to be out there. So Edge for Scholars started out as a blog site in part for that gritty truth so people could talk about elements of feeling not included across the diversity, equity, and inclusion, could talk about solutions. And you'll notice that we don't tend to run polemics. We tend to run blog posts and to accept blog posts that are, here's how we fix this in my department, or here's something I didn't know when I was a graduate student that other graduate students should know, or super practical things like before you go talk with a more senior scientist about your research concept, lock down what it's called the PICOTS, P-I-C-O-T-S. And we put up a blog post that said, before you try and share your research ideas, give it the structure that other experienced scientists will understand. And do due diligence, because you can't just fly into somebody's office and say, this is a huge problem clinically, and we need to do a study like this until you understand all the parameters of that study and the literature base and the feasibility. So... I think sometimes people get steered wrong or dismissed as not being serious enough about their research, depending on your discipline and depending on your mentorship, because you don't have enough people around you. So Edge for Scholars was designed to provide both archived, I use them like a prescription. I got a graduate student yesterday working on a manuscript. I said, go read this thing about the right rules. Then the edits I make, and you'll understand why I got rid of passive constructs, why we you know, do certain edits. 
um, for the benefit of the reader. So if we were having a seminar about how to write your K award, and even before COVID, we videotape it. We can have that link available on a local website for the people who missed the seminar. But it seems silly to have it in what amounted to an academic cul-de-sac when we could put those up in the video vault at Edge for Scholars, where we could invite other people to comment, where we could say, we, we don't know everything there is to know about how to incorporate undergrads into your lab. Can we get some of y'all to write blog posts about how to do that? Can we get some of you? We've had blogs on how to shop Prime Day. <laughs> we have great blogs on what gifts to get for your graduate students when they graduate. So really, we just wanted to cover every aspect of practical things that you just have to do in academic life that, that people don't necessarily teach you or they, they don't know that you don't know. Because odds are the most senior researchers right now came up environments in environments where they were surrounded by other researchers. And I strongly believe the most important questions left to be answered right now are questions that are not being addressed by some of those extremely mature groups. And that's why we see good results when we get interdisciplinary teams together, because they bring their, is that really how it works, questions <laughs> to each other and challenge each other until the question, the need, and the, the best way to get to the answer appears. Kathy, can I ask you a, a, a clarifying question? You um, commented that one of the things that you coach people about or that you include in the uh, Edge for Scholars um, site um, is advice to go with a basically what sounded like a fully formed research idea uh, to potential mentors. And I... I just wonder if that's really what you mean. Um, there are going to be people who listen to this uh, podcast who don't have that skill set. Um, yeah, so we'll do shameless, so, um, shameless promotion events for scholars. <laughs> so um, th that's part of the grittiness. The most established people time is the most constricted. And Nancy's exactly right that um, if you don't have the skill set yet, it may be difficult for you to shape things. But a trial at shaping it based in a structured literature review, not what you were taught and what you studied for boards, but investing the time up front to be the best possible receptacle of advice um, I'm not saying that you need to be able to write the protocol. I'm just saying that, that whether it's me or other people, you get a more thorough and practical reception if you say, I'm thinking the right population of people is women with this condition, but excluding those with immune compromise like HIV and cancer treatment. I'm thinking that the key things to exclude on, in addition to other conditions, might be this. What is the intervention? Don't, it's better to not, it's, it's not impossible to have a great conversation, but it's better not to tell me it's fish oil supplementation than it, it's better to say I looked at three most recent articles that include pregnant populations and, and the papers that reported this form of supplementation may cut down on um, craving cigarettes. 
it's better for you to have that knowledge when you get to me, not to try and float it with, this is a really cool idea. What if it's true that fish oil actually reduces cravings? Going the extra steps to come across as a sophisticated potential mentee buys you more traction and interest. And I think that probably short sells people who could do more, but if you're responsible for being the captain of your ship and you really want your ship to take this research adventure, then it, it does help to read things like, this is such an easy book to read, Holly uh, and Cummings. Designing clinical research. It started out with um, Steve Holly, I believe, and David Grimes and the folks who thought who've taught a fabulous clinical research course. And we're proud that an OBGYN was in the mix. Um, <laughs> and David Grimes has done so much to advance clinical and translational science that he doesn't get credit for. But this book grew out of that course. Short chapters, very practical. How to design the research question? How to think about the population? And for the rest of PICOS, right, how to think about what is the intervention or in the case of epidemiology, the exposure, they had bariatric surgery. Um, the comparator group is it's probably not just everybody else in some particular clinical setting. It's probably people who are waitlisted for bariatric surgery or so starting to think about what would be the most rational concepts will not necessarily get you to the study you'll do. But the fact that you've done that interrogation of how did they operationalize that? What was the dose? When did they do the follow-up? Is there a problem? And this is the, we'll come back to this. This is a permissive release that everybody needs. <laughs> is if you believe there's a critique to be made, you're not only entitled to, you need to develop that critique in a systematic and orderly way so that it becomes part of the rationale for why your science matters. But so I think that's the piece. It's not that it has to be right when you go to talk to somebody. It's that the more shape you can give it, the more quickly you can recruit their enthusiasm and or referrals to the right people to find out you know, what does it cost to get a DEXA done at Vanderbilt or how do you set up a red cap survey? I know that it's free, but how would I learn to do that? So the more you can conceptualize the things you need, the faster people can help you. It's that business agility cycle, right? <laughs> if you decide that you want to run um, your own shipping service so that you can not have to ship all your oranges by train, <laughs> you run around really quickly and you talk to other suppliers and you talk to their trucking companies and you look at their contracts. And, and before you talk to the very first trucking company, you've already done that. You're not sophisticated enough to sign a contract yet but you're ready to have a meaningful conversation about where your blind spots are, what other research you can do. And a lot of the content on Edge for Scholars is like that. There's one about shaping your aims, um, your specific aims for projects that does the same thing. It's a grid, it's a checklist. Does this science accomplish this? Does this science accomplish that? Because if you're not mentored well enough that they're picking on you like that, or if they're just like, yes, yes, let's get your residency and fellowship project done. Mm, sounds good, okay. Um, uh, you know, if it either can't be invested because they don't really have the skills, which unfortunately happens, people declare themselves researchers who aren't going to push you enough. They can't be investigated because they're too busy with their own work or other trainees or clinical demands or leadership demands or whatever. Um, that's another thing is to look for mentors who have rules about how many people they can mentor or, um, they, 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 
they can't be invested because it's not really the right topic for them. You need to know enough that when you go looking for that mentoring contract, so to speak, that you'll understand whether you're getting a mentor who's good for you, your project, your science, and your growth needs, or remembering that mentoring is not everything, right? Coaching and sponsorship are the other three pieces of that triangle that you want around you. You might find the right person in describing the details of the science you hope to do or the area you hope to work in who's a fabulous sponsor. And we'll pick up the phone, introduce you to people during grand rounds, send the email of introduction saying, Ashley is interested in doing X or Y. And in broad concept, she's interested in studying these people with this kind of thing, with this kind of outcomes, and maybe over as long as two years. That's a knockout. I answer that email pretty quickly. When somebody says, I want to understand what women in jail understand about HIV. (laughs) I don't know how to answer that email. That's like the whole universe. And um, Nancy knows we got Nancy knows this project, so she knows we got it through to a paper. But man, that's a much harder starting place to recruit people to your side who might well be really interested in what you care about. But if you give it more form, more shape, then it's they get traction. And you know, traction is allows the friction that allows research design. So Another bit of advice is pushback is not disrespect. Pushback is not treating you like you're naive. Pushback is the friction that drives research. So if I say I want to operationalize the outcomes of this ketogenic diet and weightlifting regimen uh, as change from baseline in their body weight, and somebody else says, that's pretty unsatisfying. Don't you have weekly weights? Yes, I have weekly weights. Well, why the hell wouldn't you fit a spline? It does sometimes come with colorful language. So I'm not gonna argue whether I'm, I'm not gonna argue whether that's right or wrong, right? But when it comes, that sort of discussion is designed to hone it, and it means you've locked somebody's attention onto what you're talking about. Because if they were disinterested, they're gonna blow you off or they're gonna rubber stamp, yeah, that's good enough for a fellowship project. Um, or go talk to you know Dave Jones. Um, then they're not going to do that with you. It's actually what I coach our faculty about for their grants for evaluating if your aims are strong is you need as many people as you can possibly get to look at them to look at your aims and to dig for problems. You need to invite the sniper to shoot (laughs) and you need to figure out if they're shooting at a real target that you've missed um, that they really want to be in view, um, or uh, if they're they're nitpicking, and you can't do that with a single mentor, and you can't do that with typically with a single discipline. So if you're measuring something about body composition and you're measuring something about whether people comply with their prescribed macros, you need a nutritionist. You need somebody who's into DEXA imaging. You need a lot of different people, and you can't pull on any one of them typically too much. So you need to be really efficient about what you need from them. But the quality of the questions, the quality of the measurements of both the exposures and the covariates that might matter and the quality of the outcome measures will always benefit by not saying that's what people do in the literature. And and I know Nancy speaks to this because the literature is often running in a few years behind what we suspect the right way to do the science. So 
if you have want to know a sneak peek about what is being done that is cutting edge, it's what's currently getting funded. And that's also for scholars in all of the blog posts about how to use NIH reporters to find out what's getting funded. Because you can go see people's grant abstracts, grant names, send their whole grant um, by searching keywords, key topics, key populations. It will bring you up a suite of things that have recently been funded. You can restrict the time period. And you'll go, oh, I do need to look at protein folding for that you know, genetic anomaly. It's not enough just to say I can find it and validate it anymore. I have to be able to carry the ball from... A to C to be really doing competitive stuff that's going to contribute um, or gene function imputation or, but you learn those things not typically by what you read in yesterday's journal. Um, you learn what is currently state of the art from mentors and from what is currently being funded because if they competed to get those dollars, they rose to the top of the stack in terms of both methods and study design. So study other people's work at that level. Um, more than you study any individual manuscript, unless it has a lot of supporting documents to help show you what they actually did, which ho hopefully rigor and reproducibility will get there. And we'll always be able to study everybody's science, whether it's a manuscript or grant. Yeah, one of the really great aspects of Edge for Scholars that really drew me to the website is that it provides this idea of mentorship to a larger audience that may not have that formalized direction from their home institution or from their prior education. And it builds skills that we could all benefit from because formulating that initial research question is so important. Yeah, I want to cry when I see projects done that could have been higher impact scholarly work with minor changes on the front end. So it just hurts my heart. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I think the data out there is something like 85% of biomedical research is sort of wasted uh, for one reason or another. You know, it's they didn't actually ask or answer the question in the best possible way. So there was a missed opportunity. Wasted might not be the right word, but but doesn't fulfill its potential is, is perhaps a better, or someone redid a study that actually has been done before and did not need to be repeated, um, or, you know, whatever the issue is, that um, these are very scarce resources, it's money, it's people's time, it's people's careers, um, it's patients volunteering in clinical medicine and putting themselves at potential risk and use of uh, use of their own time. Um, and so honing these sort of questions, I think, is is really important. And I think your advice is is very well taken. It, it, it actually comes out actually in, in peer review, even when the paper has gone in. The issue is that the feedback that you get at any level of a, of a scientific process should be about the science and not about the person. Um, and um, that's a flaw in some research endeavor is that the people end up being the victims and, and not, not, not the science itself. As the um, constant purveyor of negative findings, 
I've even been called the queen of negative studies. Um, <laughs> things that have no results. Um, and I've also, you know, suffered my fair degree of dismay about what people care about in women's health and declare to be an important topic versus not. I think we may finally be moving out of miscarriage is no big deal. Um, you know, there was one there was one domain in miscarriage research that was allowable, and that was recurrent pregnancy loss or relationship to infertility care. Um, but miscarriage as a general topic, um, this the Nancy triggered something here. <laughs> you know, we get us like, oh, this is a group that does a miscarriage. Um, <laughs> and um and comments and study section reviews, which fortunately we haven't seen in a little while, right from the start is endowed now. And we, we could talk later about development funding, but right from the start is endowed into the future. We're getting ready to do some fun gene by drug interaction things that you can't do because you can't do clinical trials in pregnant women. But um, when we still lived exclusively on NIH grants, um, we would get reviews back that said, yeah, pregnancy loss is common, so people will get pregnant again. Why would we spend so much money on this? It's like, there's these things called mechanisms, and there's this stuff called function, and there's this stuff called an individual woman's psychological and emotional process of having imagined a future and having the future disappear is profound for couples and individuals. And the fact that they couldn't appreciate that um, or didn't want to appreciate that as sufficient to, to be a rationale for research you do have to have thick skin and you do have to keep finding ways to get around that. Um, so, so when miscarriage alone wasn't going to be enough, we added all the other adverse pregnancy outcomes that people care about, birth restriction, preterm birth, right? And so suddenly we were getting funded. Um, but that's another lesson. I have a meeting early next week with somebody whose premise is, um, my work is important and nobody likes it. And my answer is, so you can fold up your tent and go home. Or you can do the work in an IH reporter and figure out in your population for the conditions, content area expertise you have and the methodologic expertise you have and the publication experience and national presence that you have, what is getting funded right now? Can you collect what you want to collect about sleep problems in this population of people by doing a different sleep study? So that's actually how I came to do more miscarriage and fibroids. We, we put in imaging, um, which paid off in a top 10 paper last year for methods. We put in early pregnancy imaging because you, again, back to what does clinical knowledge bring to science? We know that pregnancies stop before the bleeding starts. And nobody had, a, except for in some infertility populations or people who were following ectopics, nobody had or expectant management of, of uh, SABs that were going to happen, nobody had an exact measure for how long is that. And then when you move into reproductive epi and you start to, to do more sophisticated modeling, which we should be doing, of time at risk and in view, if I enroll you on the day you know that you're pregnant, then there was some pregnancy time before that that I can't count because you had that pregnancy had to survive to get to me. And then there's some time at the end where I can't count your alcohol use or your smoking or your count it. And we know that as OBGYNs, it turns out to be about 21 days. Um, but that gap, the arrested development, when we can document that's happening between when the clinical loss happens 
matters because it introduces bias. And that's what I mean by operationalizing definitions and improving measurements to the point where your research needs to be attended to (laughs) because you approached it differently than the 200 radiologic studies of can ultrasound predict miscarriage. Um, And what does that say about miscarriage? And what would you need to actually measure if you wanted to know if a fibroid causes miscarriage? But we snuck in our early fibroid work um, because they didn't believe our preliminary data when I had 700 women. So we added um, dating ultrasounds to get stuff about preterm birth. Exactly right. Doing dating ultrasounds, we were carefully measuring every fibroid we saw and documenting when we didn't see them. And they were providing me photos of the longitudinal transverse axis of the uterus so that I could review behind them. So that, that idea that nobody respects my idea, so I have to stop, it's, it's dead, it's, it, this is a stillbirth of my research idea, don't give in to that. Keep figuring out what it is you think are going to be the best methods for what you want to know, and then figure out what a professional society is giving the awards for that would let you do the work in the population you want and collect the data adjacent to the project. And I'm not saying turn around, you know, if your target is in front of you and the sweet spot, you know what it is. I'm not saying turn 45 or 180 degrees from that target and aim at a different target. I'm saying be savvy, (laughs) be a business person. You know, (laughs) there are people who want to buy navel oranges right now and maybe if I ship them, ship them enough Zill mangoes at a really great price for a while, they'll fall in love with mangoes too. <laughs> so maybe if I keep giving them preterm birth with really sophisticated day-specific measures of mom's exposures, those day-specific measures matter a lot more around the time of conception. And if the reviewers don't want them around the time of conception, it doesn't cost me any more to collect it. <laughs> Um, and then I can go back and do the, you know, is this drug harmful or helpful? What, is, what does it mean to have depression and be medicated or not with regard to your miscarriage risk? So don't throw away the question just because when you're trying to get recognition or funding, that it's that question in the way you're currently asking it is not popular enough or that manuscript in the way you're writing it is not popular enough. We just completely reframed a manuscript to be about preconception counseling that people were saying is kind of a, well, duh. (laughs) And we were going, well, you know, actually there are technically no guidelines about vigorous physical activity around the time of conception and what constitutes vigorous. So wouldn't it be useful to women who do that or want to do that to know if it delays time to conception or, but just reframing it sometimes even is all you need to do to create um, the visibility. And that's, that's frustrating unless you have a design thinking, which is back to this business model. Now it's called design thinking before it was innovation, before it was agile, this and that, right? (laughs) But unless you like to fail quickly, it's hard to do research (laughs) because your, your study design to mentors and, and they pick at it like we were talking about friction. Um, you develop the grant and you get critiques and you resubmit the grant and you write the papers. and you, um, So you really have to be willing to be open-minded 
about the critique you're getting. If you have to drive around that pothole and not through it, do something to get the data you want via another mechanism while you're getting something that people do want. And then um, fail. No, <laughs> failures are interesting. I, that's that, this, this is from the queen of the negative study. I did, so where do ideas come from? In the day, in the day I had on, on, my, um, on my clinic template, pre-marital exams, which says something about how old I am. <laughs> and so I did a pre-marital exam. Um, go look at you're not familiar with it, the current OBGYNs. And the woman's, the woman's question was, she had been to see a private care provider in the community who said she had a two by two centimeter fibroid and asked her if she wanted to have babies someday. And she said, yes, of course, we're hoping to have a family. And he also said, so you probably don't want to start with birth control pills as your first form of, of contraception. And then we should get that fibroid out. She came to me not to ask the question of should that fibroid be removed and is it true that I shouldn't use oral contraceptives? She came to me to ask if they should cancel their honeymoon so she could have the surgery soon. So it had generated that level of anxiety that this fibroid was going to ruin her reproductive potential, which got me to what is the right question to ask about whether fibroids are bad actors. I was a laparoscopic surgeon almost full-time at that point before I got my first few grants. Um, and I still find it amusing um, that I have laparoscopy awards and I don't go into the OR anymore. For all of our listeners, you cannot see my face on this podcast, but I am gobsmacked at the idea of premarital exams, but go on. <laughs> so, um, I was pretty convinced that we just needed to figure out which ones were the bad actors. And I carried the sort of clinical wisdom of the day that it's the submucosal ones because they distort the cavity and disrupt implantation and may increase prostaglandin production and uterine irritability or whatever you call it when the uterus is only four or five, six weeks pregnant when most losses are happening. Um, so I thought there was a good probability that a two centimeter subserosal fibroid needed absolutely nothing. <laughs> But we had no evidence in the literature. And so I wrote the, my first grant about uterine fibroids, and it turned out to be about adverse pregnancy outcomes because nobody wanted miscarriage as a topic um, or time to the conception as the topic if it wasn't infertile patients. So we wrote that first grant to say, this is really important to determine, so we, do, we operate on the right people. In a general population of women who conceive within normal timeframes and are not using infertility technology to conceive, we can't find the signal. There are no category of fibroids. And this is setting aside recurrent pregnancy loss and setting aside other evaluations. But for the average person coming to your cl clinic saying, I have a fibroid, what should I do about it? The answer is absolutely nothing. If you're symptom-free, your gynecologic health needs are in order, and you're planning a pregnancy, there's nothing you need to do with that fibroid. And that was, that was earth shaking, but it was, a, it was a negative study that initially wasn't negative enough. So we wound up having to get up to having enrolled 9,000 women and having more than 8,000 pregnancies to look at before anybody believed us. You know, 
you know, the whole concept of a negative study is so interesting to me because I really balk at that concept. I mean, to me, the negative study is where where the null hypothesis is proved, right? It it isn't well as close as we ever get. Well, the null hypothesis is supported, right? And it it's not negative. It just your your positive hypothesis wasn't supported. Um, and a so-called negative result, as you've just very well described, is a result. Mm-hmm. Um, and and oftentimes more important than uh, proving what you or supporting what you thought was going to be the case. Um, so I I'm I'm one of these people who's always thought this whole idea of a negative study is fundamentally a flawed idea. But this gets us a little bit off the. Uh... You're right. I'm 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 completely with you. But that's because I'm the queen of the null study. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am a big believer in the fact that we need to pay more attention to things that we either say are wrong that we don't have the data for, um, don't do that, like vigorous physical activity, um, or that um, the the evidence base is fundamentally flawed and we wring our hands and say, that's really hard to study. You'd have to recruit women who are planning a pregnancy to do that study, to which my answer was, yes, thank God I met Alan Wilcox when I did who did the early pregnancy study and proved that you could enroll women while they were planning. Um, guess what? I was a uh, participant in that study. Really? <laughs> yeah, my, my urine is right in that frozen uh, archive. <laughs> Have you seen it, the size of the pilots? And that was another yeah. thing, right? So they also told Alan and Donna that it wasn't going to be feasible because of the amount of storage space required which um, in my undergraduate days, I was a writing major and I fact-checked things for the then Office of Technology Assessment that was working on this little project called the Human Genome Project. The longest delay, the longest debate, the most contention were ethics of documenting the human genome and the whole how that would be and pragmatics. There are not enough freezers and labs in America to do this work. And Alan was basically told the same thing. You can't store that much urine at high quality to, 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 to do all of these things you have planned because as it has turned out, they published more than 200 papers with those urines. Um, <laughs> and right from the start, because we had a prospective group did validation that the, the metrics, the measures were stable because we would allow, we would recruit women who were part of right from the start to give us urine samples for testing levels of the things as new assays became available so that Alan's group could then dip into their supply and see if they were getting similar levels. So um, this connection among people and this willingness to look outside your immediate shop and to approach people whom I found Alan really terrifying. And he was the nicest, most genuine down-to-earth person and a fabulous thinker and a generous editor, Um, but you can just get these ideas about what people have accomplished and how intimidating they must be. And uh, that's the other thing I'd say, set that aside. The most accomplished people are often the most excited about people doing new things. Um, Ashley, were there some other questions you wanted to ask? We've used up a lot of uh, Kathy's time. Agreed. And thank you so much for joining us. But before we let you go, 
What are some of your top must-read books that you would recommend for our audience? Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> no. There's, uh, we bought the house we bought because it has 2,000 board feet of library. Um, but <laughs> I love books, and I love thinking about what other people have to say and interrogating whether or not I find that to be true or useful. Um, on this idea of um, how you conceptualize success and failure, I have really incorporated a lot about finite and infinite games, Simon Sinek. Um, is the current popularized version of that, but the original work was done um, by a psychologist in the 70s through the 90s about um, if you conceptualize what we're doing as winning and losing, you won't keep playing, or you'll play and you'll win and you'll be one of those people. Um, but if you conceptualize it as building and improving and always infinite room to, do, to run that loop, then it, it becomes an exciting thing to get up and do every day. Um, I read a lot about writing. I think I love Helen Sword, S-W-O-R-D, all of her books uh, for practical end of things. Stylish academic writing is beautiful. But she also has some books just on how famous academics write, what their writing practice is, which reassured me that, like, if your mentor does this and they publish a lot, then you got to do it that way. But I don't, that doesn't work for me. I'm a mom with four kids. So, so it really brought home to me that people, the main thing is doing it. Um, so other things, I'm a big fan of everything that lets people take their lives in context and remember to have a life. So the most current book is one that is called Time Off where the author talks about a rest ethic. I've been tweeting about it. There'll be a book club announced on Edge for Scholars. But way before that, books like Essentialism, Greg McCown, The Art of Getting Things Done by David Allen, which is about, you know, knowing the stuff you have to do, eliminating that sense that something's about to roll off the table and you got to fight with your hair on fire and being workman-like about the things that we have to do, whether that's signing your charts or preparing your next grant, that people often put themselves in crisis situation by not being workman-like. Our group starts planning for grants 20 weeks in advance. We have a big timeline with swim lanes that looks at contingencies. So if the subcontract from, I won't name that university, is not on time, <laughs> We can look at the contingencies and we can decide what we're going to move to keep the flow of it. And we have people's birthdays and anniversaries and things on the board because you shouldn't be working through that. You shouldn't be staying in the lab doing preliminary data until midnight the last three weeks before your grant goes in. So there's this aspect of quality of life that we have to give up. And I think the current generations of researchers are ready to do this, but Trainees and scholars don't believe we are. We give up this crazy, stoic idea that staying longer, working harder, whatever is the solution to success because there's good, talk about evidence-based mentoring, there's good evidence that you need to play. Your brain needs a break. You need a rest and that lateral thinking is real. So I would say for me, my best ideas and solutions to problems, especially solutions to challenges, problems in leadership roles and other places, or in data analysis or replying to a reviewer, they come in the gym. You know, when you're lifting something that's so heavy, it hurts to lift it. Um, <laughs> your brain does weird things. 
you have a few minutes to breathe. You're not really thinking about it. And suddenly oh, we could do this instead um, is there. And I, I strongly believe that enough sleep, enough play, enough free time is what clears the deck in your brain to let you think new thoughts. And anybody who's telling you you're, you don't want it enough if you're not there till 11 p.m. or up all your Saturdays and Sundays in this current day and age is sadly misinformed. That shouldn't be our culture, and we owe it. People like Nancy and I owe it <laughs> to the current um, scholars in our, in our universes to say that's not, actually not right. And if we are hearing things, it's a different kind of bystander support, right? If we're hearing things about if they just push harder, then this would happen, as opposed to looking at factual information um, about delays in your research because of COVID or other things, then we're doing an injustice it's a, um, that we need to be aware of and leaders who are willing to take up that flag and places that are willing to write about it, like Edge for Scholars. There's several blog posts about going on retreat, why it's important, and making a clearing in the woods and for time to reflect regularly um, and why that's important. So yeah, um, because I can't miss the opportunity to talk about the fact that everybody is pushing uh, books and concepts uh, that are hard sledding. Um, Diversity, equity, and inclusion is tricky. Go back into older things. I'm loving the Pulitzer Prize winning book um, by Eugene Robinson that's called Disintegration or Disintegration, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, he's a African-American writer, journalist, um, who did a beautiful job quite a while ago now talking about even within minority communities where the points of stress are, and then bringing it up to current whistling Vivaldi, um, about, um, uh, well-heeled African-American man living in New York city. I'm giving away the punchline that when he sensed um, people were nervous with him walking behind him at night. He would whistle Vivaldi. And the subconscious connection between somebody who was sophisticated enough to know classical music was enough to relax people around him, which was is sad to hear, but it's a research-based book about how those concepts form and what we can do in our work units and our universities to disrupt it. They both map with my belief that we should be reading things that are practical. <laughs> I think we're getting pretty clear and unfortunately, and many are well aware of exactly what the problems are. The solutions are much harder to track down. So I, so I really lean towards what does the research tell us about what could work? Um, so to build community and to, to make our academic lives um, engaging and fun. Everybody want to go to work every day. I don't know that we're ever going to get there with electronic medical records and scheduling, but other than that, everybody should probably go to work every day. <laughs> and if you don't, you have to start to think about whether um, you're, it's not a follow your bliss thing, because I've already told you, you may have to describe your bliss differently in order to get what you want, but it is a skills, follow your ability and, and follow what turns you on, like in my case, having mentees. And doing that at an institutional level for hundreds of mentees at a time with resources and activities and then translating that back into Edge for Scholars is far more meaningful than any one study or paper I could get done. So I, th I think it's going to go in the show notes. Show notes, I guess that's the proper terminology for this. But um, 
Kathy, can you give uh, the uh, URL for Edge for Scholars so someone listening yes. uh, could uh, it get is to all it? one word, no cuteness, no number four. It is edgeforscholars.org. And then my own research is right from the start study that features all these negative findings and my collaborators and how widespread we are. Um, and we have a new paper coming out that um, uterine fibroids are not associated either with um, mechanism of preterm birth, iatrogenic, preterm rupture, preterm labor. Um, so that's right from the startstudy.org as well. You can run by titles or things later or whatever works for you. I'm not in a rush, but I don't. Okay. Oh, no, I mean, um, you have my academic titles and things, right? I'm no longer deputy director of the Institute for Medicine and Public Health. Um, I moved to a vice presidency for research integration, unfortunate name that should have been called Research Synergy, because that's what I get to do is think about how we form new teams and how we help folks who feel like they're stuck in an area where people are disinterested by shifting, find the synergy, sometimes by literally running it through a new field. So my favorite example is I chair the, the PFDN Euroguide Network, and um, there was a particular study about um, post-operative care and surgical outcomes that just couldn't get funded by typical Eurogyne and NICHD Division of Gynecologic Health and Diseases. Pretty broke. Let's just say their bank account is not robust. So that was just not going to work. But reframing the measurements so that they would be Institute on Aging and about frailty and about mm -hmm. whether a frailty pre-op helps. What better population than women having urogyne surgery, right? You know, <laughs> over 70, they, they mostly think they have some lifespan left, but we found an astonishing level of frailty. But that study wouldn't have had money behind it if we hadn't done this business of, okay, there's always a different way. There's always, a, it's like negotiating. You think you go into a negotiation with my side and their side, and in reality, there's a third, fourth, or fifth way. And I think that's the that's the key, and that's why I love this job of creating synergy, because sometimes we can find the other door that groups of people who have really clever ideas can walk through, but because of their disciplinary focus, they just didn't have a concept that that could actually be a Susan B. Komen grant about access to mammography. Um, so the, the creative energy of getting people together is really fun, but that's the main thing. I'm just, I'm not deputy director and it keeps showing up on places and it's on websites and whatnot. So I'm vice president for research integration and the associate dean for clinical and translational scientist development. And then I run our CTSA and Birch programs, but we also, our office locally is called Edge for Scholars at Vanderbilt and we run more activities than there are weeks in a year and grant reviews and studios for people to get this gritty advice and friction <laughs> from experts and a grant library so you can read whole grants of people that you admire. And then we try and push that out to the, the broader public. My best day is when somebody at Boise State writes me and says, my grants manager didn't know this. Thank God you guys wrote about it. Um, yeah. That's <laughs> not cool. the smarty pants that we knew it and they didn't. It's that that person actually got the information at a time that helped them. Yeah. Kathy, you're the best. I have fun.
I like my job. <laughs> it was really fun. I could talk forever, okay. but we can't. Thank so. you so much for joining us. Dr. Hartman is a highly renowned, rare hybrid of OBGYN and epidemiologist, as well as the vice president for research integration at Vanderbilt University, who's published extensively on a wide range of topics, including fibroids and fertility. She is a self-described, no-nonsense purveyor of evidence-based mentoring and dedicated disruptor of dogma. Here with us to discuss Edge for Scholars, a website comprised of senior faculty, early career trainees, productive scientists, opinionated curmudgeons, passionate advocates, experienced writers, grant reviewers, and dedicated mentors who are hard at work providing more fuel for their intellectual fire. Their words, not mine. This podcast is hosted by Ashley Comfort and Nancy Cheshire and supported by the OBG Project. We hope you enjoyed this and stay with us for more regular discussions with rad researchers. Happy learning! Happy learning!